Well, the songs today and the decorations, the palms, the whole name of the day, Palm Sunday, we celebrate today, the day that Jesus rode in on the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem to cries of Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna means save us. They were looking to him to save them. And they waved these palm branches and even put them down for him as a, almost the same way that we would wave an American flag at a rally, you know, a national symbol of pride. And our king is here and he is great. Everyone bowed down before him. He was received with laud and honor, declaring himself to be the king of Jerusalem, the heir to David's throne as he was. Several times they had tried to make him king and crown him king and he had evaded them because his time hadn't yet come. But now Holy Week is here and his time has come and the king has entered into the city riding humble on the colt of a donkey. And we're going to look this morning at the first thing he does next. The reason is when a person is appointed to an office and celebrated in an office, often the first thing they do is really symbolic. It often really matters. A president may give an inaugural address that has some nice rhetoric in it, but what we really know is what are those executive orders that are already sitting on his desk because that sends the real sign. What does he intend to do? Those first couple of acts tend to tell you that. The very first thing I did here when I was installed as your pastor was pray. And that was intentional. I meant for that to be the very first thing that I did. Often when someone is put into an office like that, the first thing they do tells you a lot about what they are going to do in their time in the office. So what is it that Jesus does first? What does that tell us about him? And what does that tell us about what he will do as king when he returns. That's what we're asking this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. We're going to pick up right after he came in. The children shouted, everyone shouted Hosanna at him. The palm branches were waved. And here is what he does next. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? The words of the Lord. The Spirit inspired those words in part to grow our longing for Jesus' return. Now, Often the word speaks to 
true teaching and often then it speaks to what goes on inside our hearts and then other times it speaks to what we ought to be doing in our practical lives. Sometimes it speaks to your insides and sometimes it speaks to your outsides. This is one of those weeks that speaks more to the insides. What does a right heart look like? What does the Lord want to do in our hearts this morning? He wants to whet our appetite for Jesus' return as King. He wants us to walk out of here with a stronger desire to see Jesus come back and rule and reign forever than we had that desire before we came in this morning. He wants to grow that desire. He's doing that by giving us two signs of what Jesus will do when he returns. Two things Jesus will put an end to among his people when he comes back. Two things that I hope you and I long for him to put an end to. Uh, That is corruption in the leadership among God's people and all affliction. When he comes back, There will be no more corruption in the house of God and in the church of God and in all the organizations surrounding the church of God. And when he comes back, our church prayer list will get a lot shorter because he will heal every one of our afflictions. We're going to look forward to that day and we're going to long for that together through this story that we're going to read of what Jesus does, or that we have read of what Jesus does when he first uh, first act as king. Now, the reason we're doing that, there's a lot of threads in this story, and the thread that I'm leaning on here for this message is that throughout the book of Matthew, and especially in the Holy Week, the life of Jesus and the events of the end times are very intertwined. They sort of braid together as two threads. For instance, when Jesus begins to teach, his message is summarized in chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying this, you would almost think the kingdom has come fully and completely already in his first coming, and yet it's not until the book of Revelation that we read, behold, the kingdom of God has come. So there's this end of the thing is in mind already. Here we see him coming in and giving us signals as to what he will do when he comes back. Then in chapter 24, in the middle of Holy Week, we read of all of his end times teachings. Most of the famous end times teachings in Matthew are stuck there in the middle of Holy Week because the two are kind of intertwined. He will be crucified and will die on a cross and it will be full of apocalyptic imagery. The sky will go black. There will be an earthquake. The curtain will be torn in two. The dead will be raised. We would understand if somebody read this not knowing that it happened 2,000 years ago and thought, oh, I bet the end of the world is the week after this thing is over with because it kind of feels like the end of the world is coming. What Matthew is doing here as he is intertwining Jesus' first coming with his second coming because his first coming tells us a lot about his second coming. The things he does here tell us a lot about what will happen when he comes back. Specifically, him going into the temple, overturning the tables, healing the blind and healing the lame, tell us that when he comes back, he will put an end to corruption among his people and he will put an end to all of our afflictions. This is what King Jesus will do for us. And so we're going to look at those one at a time. We'll spend more time on the first one. How will Jesus deal with corruption in his house when he comes? And then we'll spend a little time on how he will heal our afflictions as well. Uh, Let's look again at verses 12 and 13. This gives us a picture of how Jesus will handle corrupt leadership in the house of God when he comes back. It says, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And then he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. There's a lot going on here that gives us a little bit of the backstory of what's happening. When he went into the temple, he went into the outer court of the temple. There were three areas in the temple. And it was kind of like, you know those Russian dolls that you pull one open and there's another one inside and then you can open it and then there's another one inside there and it goes on for, it's like that but only three layers. There's the outer court and the outside. It's got a wall around it. You can come in and now you're in the outer court of the temple but you haven't gone in the building yet. Inside the outer court is the actual building of the temple. They would call that the inner court. You would go in there, you would offer sacrifices, many things that people could do in there. Not everybody could go in there though. And then inside the inner court was a little room called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in there. And even then, only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So there are kind of different levels you can go into. And depending on when it was and who you were, you could go so far in toward God's presence and worship him. Uh, that's important because for some of the characters in the story, for those who were blind and for those who were lame, they could only go into the outer court of the temple. They could not go any further than that. And uh, that's what the law said. We wonder if maybe the leadership was keeping them out even more than that. Uh, some could go in the inside and then only the high priest could go in the very middle into the Holy of Holies. Now, what wound up happening was you would travel to Jerusalem, say you wanted to make a sacrifice and it was time for a festival. And let's say you live 150 miles away and you've got a lamb that you want to offer. In that day, it's not going to be very easy to take your lamb 150 miles to the temple. And so what they would do is they would sell the lamb in their town, pocket the money, travel to Jerusalem, buy another lamb and then sacrifice that lamb. And the Lord approved of that. That was how they got around that practical limitation of getting the animals to the temple. So you'd get to Jerusalem, you would exchange your money for the currency there, you would buy whatever animal you were going to sacrifice, you would take it up the hill, you would bring it into the temple and the priest would help you sacrifice. And that's how it worked for a very long time. Well, the leadership at some point, we think it was Caiaphas, the high priest that's mentioned here, but we don't know that for sure. At some point, the leadership decided, hey, let's move that marketplace from the other spots in the city into the outer court of the temple. It'll be more convenient. We'll make a little more money because we can charge a temple tax and that'll be nice. It'll work out great for everybody. And so they took that marketplace where the money was changed and the animals were brought for the sacrifices and brought it into the outer court of the temple. They thought that was a good idea. Well, what happened was if you were a Gentile, or if you were blind, or if you were lame, or for many other people, uh, the only place that you could go to worship God near his presence was the outer court of the temple. And it was meant to be a place where you could go and you could maybe hear some of the prophets read and some of the prophets would speak of a day when I will bring in the blind and the lame to my presence and I will heal them. And so they had this hope that one day they were going to be brought fully in and they were going to be healed and they were going to be restored and there they are in that idyllic, beautiful outer court of the temple praying and worshiping to God. And there were Gentiles next to them, people who weren't Jews, but they wanted to worship 
worship the God of the Jews, the Lord himself. So they would come and they would stand in this outer court and there'd be these beautiful pillars there and this glorious large building and it would evoke awe in their hearts and they would worship the Lord God. And they were meant to be every once in a while the sound of a lamb coming in and they would know, oh, a lamb is being sacrificed. It's a beautiful, worshipful place that you could go and pray. And instead, what the Gentiles and the lame and the blind got when they went into the outer court was, get you, you lambs, you lambs right over here. I got four. Who wants them? Look, I got pigeons. You want my pigeons? My pigeons are better than his pigeons. Come and get my pigeons. Now, you want my exchange rate, not his exchange rate, because I won't charge you the temple tax. So come in here. Meanwhile, somebody's pigeons got loose and they're all over the place. They're fluttering around in your face while you're trying to pray. And to top it all off, a bull just walked by and pooped on your shoe while you were trying to pray. Not the idyllic, worshipful atmosphere that God wanted for the blind, for the lame, and for the Gentiles. And so the Lord says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. You got all these corrupt marketplace guys trying to rip each other off in my house where the blind, the lame, and the Gentiles are supposed to be able to come and to worship. So Jesus comes in to this scene as king, as the one who is worshipped in the temple. It's his house. And in the words of my five-year-old, he doesn't love it. Uh, he, he does not like it very much. No, he comes in and like he is fed up with this corruption. He flips over the tables He turns over the seats of the money changers. And then he gives the words, this house is meant to be a house of prayer. And you have turned it into a den of thieves. What we are looking at there is the zeal with which our Lord confronts corruption in his house. When he puts people in leadership over his people, Those people act corruptly and make decisions that are not good for the people that they're leading, especially keeping people who are seeking God from worshiping him. The Lord doesn't just say, okay, I'll be righteous and deal with that. No, he burns with a zeal in his eyes to handle that. So we are seeing in that moment, if you can just imagine that table flipping over and a few times before it hits the ground and you can see the fire in his eyes, what you're seeing is the zeal with which he will judge the earth when he returns. The zeal with which he will confront false teachers in his church who preach a different gospel that their hearers think is the true gospel because they're teaching it from the Bible. You're seeing the zeal with which he will confront church leaders who abuse and mistreat their people and then cover it in spiritual terms and prayer and biblical words and things. He will come back with a zeal and a fire in his eyes for that. Now, there is one way we tend to read this wrong, and I need to point it out. Uh, A lot of times, uh, God's people will harbor within ourselves uh, an angry or judgmental spirit ourselves. 
And then somebody will confront you for being angry or judgmental. This happens especially online a lot. And what's the classic line when somebody is being mean because they're angry and they're being judgmental toward the church and you confront them? What are they going to say nine times out of ten? Well, Jesus turned over tables in the temple so I can act like this, right? That's the justification we will lean on to excuse a judgmental and an angry spirit. What's wrong with thinking of it like that? Well, the problem there is that to read the story that way, you have to identify with Jesus, right? You have to, you know, you're the Jesus character in the story, which means that you're the judge and you're the king. And in reality, you and I are not the judge or the king, are we? No. We don't read the story identifying with Jesus. We read the story identifying with the children who are lauding him, or maybe the priests who are being confronted by his words. We're reading this story wondering which of the other characters we are, because we know from the get-go, I'm not the king. I'm not the judge. And so I don't have the authority to go into somebody else's house or judge someone else's servant and turn over their tables. That's why Paul can say, who am I to judge the servant of another man, right? All these ministers are Jesus' servants, and he is the one who will judge them. So reading that story then shouldn't embolden us to carry a judgmental spirit toward others. It should actually make us tremble because we are not the ones judging others in this story. We are the ones being judged. So we should shake a little bit before our God and say, Lord, Lord, who am I in this story? Am Am I the child singing and honoring you? Or am I the priest scoffing, saying, do you hear this abomination of what is going on in the temple? It should move us with reverence and trembling before our God. What Jesus will do when he comes back is he will separate within the church the true and genuine Christians who are gathered to worship Jesus Christ and the false hypocritical Christians who either are here for some other reason or who think that they're here to worship Jesus but have deceived themselves. Uh, We get two really good pictures of this, at least, in the Gospels. One is the parable of the sheep and the goats. The Lord comes and he takes the sheep, that is the genuine believers that follow him, and he puts them on his right side, and he takes the goats, that is the hypocritical Christian leaders and the hypocritical churchgoers, and he puts them on his left. On his left there, you will find every Christian publisher and teacher who is just in it for the money and is in it for the fame and isn't in it because they love to teach the word of God. And on his right, you will find every Christian leader and Christian teacher and celebrity and publishing house who loves the word of God, like Ezra the priest says, I'm going to study this, I'm going to master it, and as much as the Lord allows me, I'm going to teach it to others. There are, in the Christian publishing world, on YouTube, in this room, both genuine followers of Jesus Christ who profess the truth and those who are putting on a show and pretending. And the hard thing about it is you and I can't tell who is who. I can see all of you right now and I don't know which ones of you are which. But the Lord can see through all of us. When he returns, he will put the sheep on one side, the goats on the other, And he will say to the sheep, come into the kingdom that my father has prepared for you. And he will say to the goats, be gone into the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels from the foundation of the world. 
Jesus turning over tables in the temple is, is a little picture of the zeal that will be in his eyes when he says that. Another picture we get. Parable of the, the wheat and the weeds, or some people call it the parable of the weeds. Uh, there's a man who has a field and he, he's got plants growing in his field. He's a farmer. He's got wheat growing in his field. He's having a good harvest and his enemy comes and sows all sorts of weeds. And so now he's got great wheat plants, but the wheat plants aren't doing as well because there are also weeds all over the place. And his servants come to him and say, okay, should we pull all the weeds so that your field is pure again? And he says, no, you, you need to leave them there for now. Because if you pull them up, it'll damage the wheat plants too. Let's wait till harvest. When harvest comes, we'll gather all the true wheat, we'll put it in the barn, we'll make good use of it, and then we'll bind up all the weeds and send them off to be burned. That's another picture of the day of judgment that's coming. We look to the Lord and we see some of the scandal that is going on in the church, even in our convention, stuff happening on the internet. And we think, Lord, why don't you just pull all of these weeds up? Why is the Lord allowing stuff like that to happen? And the Lord says, it's not time to pull the weeds up yet, but the day will come and he sees tr through the true and the false one day, every one of those weeds, he will pull up with a zeal and a fire in his eyes and send them off to be burned. And so we look at our Lord flipping over tables and we tremble and we say, Lord, let it not be me whose table you flip over on that day. And we take comfort as well. There's a lot of tension in our hearts even over things that we have seen in the last few years. Because of the internet, we get to see some of these people crash and burn, don't we? And so I, uh, I watched several Ravi Zacharias videos about how to defend the gospel and learn so much about the gospel from him. And then he died, and I learned along with some of you that the whole time he was preying on women. Perhaps throughout his whole ministry, was a, was a predator while he was preaching and teaching this stuff. And so as somebody who learned a few things from him, I look at that and I say, Lord, was, was he just deeply flawed and overcome by your enemy or was he a fraud the whole time? And I don't know. But I can take comfort because the Lord knows. And when he returns, he will put him on the correct side and know just what to do with him. Many people are troubled today about the stories of Mark Driscoll that have gone all over the internet and the things that he did while on one hand preaching with so much power and fire and on the other hand bullying people behind the scenes. And as I look at that, I wonder, like, Lord, was he just really misguided or was he a predator the whole time? Was he just a fake in here trying to prey on us to get famous? Which was he? And you can really rack your brain trying to figure that out. But we're not going to know the answer because we can't see into his heart. Who can see into his heart, though? Jesus can. And when he comes back, he will put Mark Driscoll on the correct side. We will learn what was going on in Mark Driscoll's heart when our Lord returns. Some of you know a lot about Joel Osteen, who has uh, for a long time been getting very wealthy, preaching the prosperity gospel while he holds up his Bible and pretends it's the real gospel. Does he just deeply misunderstand the message of the Bible and is, is he proclaiming it honestly? Or does he know what he's doing and is he preying on people? I don't know and we don't have to know because the Lord sees into his heart 
And if Joel Osteen needs his tables overturned when Jesus comes back, then Jesus will overturn his tables when he comes back. So even something like the mighty and zealous judgment of God can bring great comfort to God's people when we know that there are corrupt leaders who call themselves Christians. I don't quite understand what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, but I'm pretty certain that some of the people there are not doing right, that there are some snakes and I cannot discern who is who there. Now, we've got to do whatever we can to try to make that thing righteous, but at the end of the day, we can take comfort because the Lord sees through them all. The Lord knows who's playing dirty politics in our convention, and he will come back and he will make it right. So his people then do not need to fret. If you long for the truth about Ravi Zacharias or Mark Driscoll or Joel Osteen or Rob Bell or whatever's going on in the SBC or whatever corner of the internet that you are paying attention to, and if you long for justice and judgment even to come, I want you to know who you are longing for. You are longing for a person. You are longing for Jesus Christ. And that heart that longs to see justice done will be satisfied when he comes with this fire in his eyes and he flips over every table that needs to be flipped over. Now, before we move on to his other action, which is is healing those that had afflictions, uh, we should ask, lest we miss an important point here, what was it that Jesus judged them for? Like, what what did he fault them for? And is there anything we can learn from that to make sure that we are not guilty of it ourselves. Uh, Essentially, what happened there that angered him so much was the disobedience of the leaders who brought that marketplace into the outer court. They weren't supposed to do that, but their disobedience. And then the corruption of the people in the marketplace kept genuine God-seekers from worshiping him. There, there were people who really wanted to come and worship God, genuine people that, wanted to, that sought him and wanted to find him. And the actions of the leaders in the marketplace kept them from doing that. And so we can learn then that the Lord burns with a fire when disobedience among his people keeps other people who seek him from worshiping him. And that means we must be very much on guard to make sure we do not do this very thing, to make sure that our disobedience doesn't keep outsiders who are seeking truth and seeking God from coming here and finding him. So, for instance, when someone is genuinely seeking God and they wander into a church building and ask, okay, is there a real God here worth worshiping? Whoever he is, I want to find him. And a preacher gets up and he holds up his Bible and he preaches and teaches, but he teaches a false gospel. And that genuine God seeker is sitting in the pew saying, oh, okay, that's what I need to believe to be saved. We've got two very big problems there. One, a false teacher. And that alone is enough to anger our Lord. But when that false teaching puts a stumbling block between an honest person who wants to come in and hear the truth, now they are walking out believing a false gospel, the Lord begins to turn over tables and say, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is supposed to be somewhere that people can come and hear the true gospel. And so he burns with that same fire in his eyes. Or to look at it a little different, different example, perhaps someone is genuinely seeking a relationship with God. They come, they sit, and the preacher opens the Bible and teaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Salvation by grace through faith because Jesus died and rose. Let's say that's preached instead. So a person hears the real gospel and then they go out into the church hallways and they hear gossip and they hear foul language and they hear crude jokes in the hallway. And then they say, oh, huh, I thought that message was true and it really changed people. I guess not. And they walk away not believing because of the disobedience of God's people. The Lord looks down and burns and says, I brought that person in there to hear the truth and to believe the truth. And my own people's disobedience has kept them away. This is the sort of thing that motivates our Lord to turn over tables. For us, what, what might that look like? Well, thankfully, I don't hear a lot of crude jokes in our hallways, so I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Um, but, but what could happen? How could we potentially a month, a year from now, disobey our Lord in a way that would keep people from coming in? I can think of one way. And that would be if we took what we might call nostalgia. We took our love for the way things were and we elevated it over the Lord that we love and are seeking. We have always been a people that really like the old ways. And by we, I mean me and you both, right? I read 400-year-old sermons for fun. Like that's, I don't, I don't want to watch TV. I want to read an old 400-year-old sermon because I think that's fun. We love the old songs, don't we, as a people? And when it comes to how to do church and do you have pews or do you have chairs, we're going to default to pews. And do you have a pulpit or not, we're going to default to the old way. and Because that's what we love, right? That's what's on our hearts. And how much is that magnified after the last two years, how deeply do we just want to go back to the way things were? How much do we just miss the way things were two and a half years ago? Even my heart longs for that and misses that. Now, it isn't wrong to love what the Lord has done in the past. And there's nothing wrong with a pulpit. There's nothing wrong with a choir. All these things are good. But here's where we can go wrong. We can begin to love the way things were more than we love Jesus. And then we can begin to gather at church longing for the way church used to be rather than longing for Jesus, who is why we are here in the first place. We can even begin to pour our energy and our mission efforts to getting back to the way things were rather than reaching Greenwood for Jesus Christ, which is what we were doing back then in the first place, right? And so if we elevate the way things were, if we take nostalgia and we put it above Jesus Christ, the Lord says, you're supposed to come to worship me, right? And so that would be disobedience to him in the first place. It would also prevent many people who come in desiring to hear from the one true God from finding him and seeking him. Because we can get so particular in old ways that we begin to send a message that this message we preach is for old school people like us, right? We are very culturally particular and you need to look like us and be our age and do things the way that we do them in order to hear this message. So someone can come in looking nothing like us, being a very different age, come from a very different walk of life and perspective on things, and they come in to worship God. And if we do too many of the older type things, well, that sounds a lot like them to get your you lambs, right? Come over, get over here on my pigeons. And it sounds just like that. It puts a distraction in people's way that prevents them from worshiping God. So not only would we be disobeying God, but we would be putting up a wall and a barrier that would prevent people from coming to him. If we were to do that, 
If we were to leave here this morning with a longing in our heart for the way things were that was greater than our longing for Jesus, not only would we be disobeying our Lord, and that would actually be idolatry, which is one of the most serious sins, but we would also be keeping genuine God-seekers from coming in and worshiping him. So this is what we must be on guard against as the time goes ahead. We will all have in us, and I have in me, a desire to see things go back to how they were. But we have to keep that secondary, even third to the main thing, reaching Greenwood for Jesus Christ. That's why we were here. That's why we are here. And if we're still here in 100 years, I hope that is why we are still here then. So let's chase after Jesus Christ. Practically, that means that as we have a limited energy and funds and and resources we can pour into rebuilding things, we aren't going to prioritize rebuilding our favorite things. We're going to prioritize rebuilding the things that help us make disciples, train disciples, and send disciples of Jesus, because that is why we are here in the first place. So that's what we can gain from this image of Jesus turning over tables in the temple. He does something else very profound. Looks profound to us, it was probably even more profound to them. Let's look at verse 14. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Two really profound things there. One, you probably noticed, he healed them. That's incredible, right? But you might miss the other incredible thing. They came into the temple to him. These are people who probably in that day were actually kept out from even coming into the outer court, certainly weren't allowed to go into the inner court, and it's not super clear here what part of the temple he's in when they're coming to, but they come to the Lord himself, and he heals and restores them. This is tremendous for the blind and lame community in Israel. They have, since the beginning days of Israel, longed for the day when the Lord come and brought them all the way into his presence. Uh, The way that the law was written, uh, someone who had an affliction like that knew that the Lord cared about them very much and protected them. There were, like, there were laws that said things like, you must not mislead a blind man in the road. Like, the Lord is looking out for that blind man. Don't mislead him. You you must not put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. Why? Because that would be cruel, and the Lord loves and protects people like that. So they knew, the Lord loves me, and he protects me. And they knew because of the hope of the prophets that a day was going to come when they would be fully healed, fully restored, and brought all the way into God's presence. And for every person who is afflicted here today, that's the great hope that we have. The Lord is going to come and restore us. That means he's going to heal our bodies fully and bring us into his presence for worship. Because that's what the human body was made for. We get a little prefiguring of this here, a little picture of what it will be like when all of these people come to the Lord Jesus who has just been lauded as king and he heals them all. And the children cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you have a bad back, Jesus is going to heal it on that day. If your knees have gone south, as mine are starting to, and some of yours already have, the Lord will heal them on that day. Uh, every, every person who, as a child, had to roll around in a wheelchair and was teased in school for it, was all treated like an outcast for it, 
who turns and trusts in Jesus for full forgiveness and full healing will find in that day their body completely restored for the purpose of worship. Their legs will work again so that they can jump up and down for Jesus. A woman named Joni Erickson Tata, who I think she uses a wheelchair herself, her her legs don't work correctly. Uh, She says that on that day when Jesus comes back, she says, the first thing that I'm going to do when he heals my legs is kneel before him because that is why he gave me legs in the first place. You will be restored. Whatever ailments you have, you will be restored and fully healed so that you can worship Jesus. The blind will be given their sight so that they can see Jesus in his glory and worship him. Oh, for that day to come. Can you imagine that day for us as a church? Our church prayer list is now an eight and a half by 14 sheet. It's no longer big enough for eight and a half by 11 because we have so many afflictions and ailments among us. That thing is going to go down to a little postcard when he comes back because he is going to heal all of those things. And then we, like children, are going to sing and shout Hosanna to the son of David. There will be those in that day who scoff like the priests and the scribes and say, oh, do you see all this awful stuff that is going on? And I think that's intended to leave you wondering which one you will be on that day. When the Lord comes, he turns over the tables of the corrupt and heals all of those who seek him. Will you sing to him like a child who just dances and twirls in these aisles like nobody is watching? Or will you look like a very smart person and say, oh, all this madness that is going on. Which one is in your hearts? The Spirit of God calls you now. Let, let, me, let me be the one who sings to him like a child. Let me be the one who prays every day, Lord, send your son back today. Let us see him return so that we can see his face. This Jesus is the only name by which you can be saved. He's the only name by which you can have your sins forgiven. It's the only name by which you can find true healing and eternal life forevermore. So my call to you is to put all of your trust and all of your song into that Jesus. Let's pray.